Welcome to this week's episode of Hey, I think we're good here. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jackson Metakekia. And I'm Matt West. And we're here getting to know the sport of volleyball through the life experiences our guests have to share with us. Come take a listen. Today's episode stars University of Miami associate head coach Casey Kreider. Casey is a two-time All-American and two-time All-NPSF selection. He also played one year in Denmark where he won the Nordic Cup and Danish Pokal Cup, while also winning Danish Superliga Player of the Year. On this episode, we discuss Casey's playing career, starting as a terrible basketball player, quickly developing into a top recruit for men's volleyball. His time at Pepperdine under Marv, playing with Paul Carroll, how his mentality about the game has always revolved around a coach's eye. His time with our team in 2013 as a volunteer assistant as Pep, surviving in Palo Alto on a volunteer assistant salary, his move to Miami, and most importantly, the beginnings of his studies into ecological dynamics. Casey is now the podcast expert on ecological dynamics as he will begin his doctorate in the subject if COVID allows for it. We go into a deeper understanding of the topic, uh, how it applies to coaching, how it applies to you as a player, and various other ways. Enjoy. I can recall something that's gone from me. When you move, honey, I'm putting all something so flawed and free. So move me, baby. Shake like the Bible tree. Hi, Casey. What's going on, guys? Hello, Case. What's going on, Jackson? I look more and more like Wolverine every day. Fucking <laughs> bro. Maddie, what time is it out there? It's almost 10 o'clock. I'm making exceptions for you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I thought I was going to have to get up early. I have a question for both of you now. Yeah. Setting question. Okay, so yeah. you can take this off or whatever. But I was talking to Mike yesterday. And Ma'a or Christensen? Ma'a. Yeah, yeah. Whenever I have an idea, I talk to Ma'a. Whenever I have, like, a bona fide question, I talk to Christensen. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Ma, I like hash out the world with that kid. Whenever I need a direct answer, I ask Christensen. But I was asking him about presenting. Is what that's what he calls it, presenting. Like he like draws his hands earlier, sure. right? I had never heard that until yesterday. So he presents really early now, and he was saying that his uh, hitting percentage at UCLA when he started presenting earlier went up like a hundred points. His teams. Yeah, his team's hitting percentage because they could identify what he was going to do or, like, where the ball was coming from earlier. Sure. And then – so I went down the rabbit hole today, and I think I've been on Volumetrics for, like, 10 hours just watching. <laughs> Which is a normal, a normal Monday for you, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. But I was just watching people presenting, and, like, <laughs> everybody's so different. Like, DiCecco presents – literally when the ball is going to hit his hands. Yeah. Right. And then you have guys like Bruno that depending on how well the game's going is when they present. So like, if it's not, if he's in shambles for a little bit, like he'll present super, super early 
and he'll spend more time on the ground, like completely simplifies it. For you guys, what do you prefer? Because you guys are both setters. So now I'm curious, like, did you present early? Did you present later? Or was it totally dependent on feel on the day? Or Man. I remember, Casey, I remember you having, I don't know if it was early, but it was a pretty distinct, like, high contact point. Yeah, I, man, I, I don't know. If, I, I don't know how, how if it was high or not. I, I don't remember that. Uh, I was really stiff. Like Matt had uh, or has still playing uh, had way better. He, he was more fluid, if that makes any sense. I think that's probably why he. Uh, there's lots of reasons why he said it faster than I did. But he could. Matt Matt said a pretty good go and a pretty good red. I was way better out of system, long distance, chucking it to the lights in, in Firestone, and uh, so I think for me. Um, it's probably a little earlier. Um, I would never, ever, ever teach somebody to set like I did though. So I don't think that's the way. Um, you know, I, to answer your question, Matt, I, I kind of think that like, as long as it's not too late or too early, and that's such a bullshit answer, you know, <laughs> but uh, I think honestly, I think there's probably a bandwidth there that's just, and maybe I, I like what you said about Bruno. He's, he has the ability to change it like the ability to do lots of different things and yeah. still function. And I think that was one of the, my, my issues as a player was I, I was kind of like a little bit of a robot. Like I needed to be like this or I was not good. And uh, so I would encourage the ability to do it a little bit early, a little bit later and, and kind of uh, create some variability personally. But um, that's a good question. I think you said something about like the hitter, I think Micah was saying like, yeah, it, it helped the hitters see some stuff. When I look at hitters, their eyes during like a side, the side out phase, usually they watch the ball for a little while. And I, it'd be interesting to see like, when do they eventually look at the setter? Is, are the, is the ball, are their hands presented like you said or not? Um, probably a little bit different hitter to hitter, but um, I think there's something there. Like I think the visual of the setter matters for the hitter. I think if you can present a relatively repeated visual, then it's probably better for the hitter. Um, but yeah, it's a interesting question. I, I would trust Micah, whatever Micah says, pretty good. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. I, yeah, I don't know if I would, I don't know if I prefer anything, but I, the big like dysfunction that I've seen in the past is when people like from their hands down, just like do one motion to set and that's where like variability in location and probably like you're talking about tough to read for the center. So I've always said if it's two separate motions, you know, but yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to toy with that a lot it's more. It's better with two separate or it's better with one? It's better with two separate, much better. I've seen you say that because when I was in the gym and Hildebrand was in there, he wanted one move because that's how he sets. Yeah. So like he also every, does basically the, he whoever also does in the gym at that time, whoever's setting, whoever's the setter coach is usually was a setter. So they just sure. tell you how they set. Yeah. Right. So I like, promise I, I don't do that. <laughs> so like Tyler was really smooth and like had a lot yeah. of flow. So he taught everybody to have a lot of flow and he wanted one move and then just like have really strong, good hands. And I was like, well, Tyler had really strong, good hands. Yeah. <laughs> right we're like thorny like has you finish with his hands up and like big palm like palms up which is exactly how thorny always said yeah you know so it's like yeah. but they all work it's just like what 
can you adapt to and like what works yeah. for you? Yeah. I think that's, I think you nailed it. The ability, like the idea that you can do lots of different ways and make it work, you know? Yeah, sure. Tyler was really good. <laughs> yeah. Tyler might like the best bands ever. Yeah. He did, yeah. he did something kind of interesting. He like uh, would start his, his thumbs way back, almost up and then like come under the ball a little bit, but God, was he good. Yeah. That guy's money. Yeah. He's money. He's also one of the first guys that ever taught me the negative step. Uh, running to the ball. Yeah, like he'd start – he always started with the negative step to get going, and then he would yeah. move. Yeah. And uh, he was like – he was huge on that. I don't know if he's still big on that now, but he was just big on flow, which, I mean, at the time I didn't know. And then looking back and, like, the archives and watching him, I was like, aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. Big flow guy. He was legit. I'll tell you what, that 2004 national title game was like a – was like my Bible growing up. Watching Carlos Moreno and, and Tyler Hildebrand as I learned to set, that was like all I had. I didn't have nobody taught me what to do. <laughs> so I just watched those two and then tried to do it like them. Came up a little short, I'd say. But yeah, those are two two good people to watch. Yeah, for sure. I had Luke Murray and Winder. Yeah, it's 08. 08. Yeah, that's, the match, that's the match we lost. Yeah, unfortunately. But Luke, Luke was legit too. Luke, Luke was, was good. Yeah. Triple double in a national championship match. So sick. Yeah. <laughs> five, five, ten, if that, you know. Yeah, man. Well, the guy could blow. The guy yeah, from IPFW? What's that? IPFW? No, Penn State. Yeah, he was on that team with Matt Anderson and Max Holt, Max Lipsitz. And this guy, I think his name was Jay Stoffer, was the other outside hitter. Yeah, man, that guy. And that was like literally. He was a left side hitter. They set him like once or twice a set, and the guy was nails. And then they had this opposite Ryan Schweitzer, who was hit this fast red. He was a lefty, and their libero Dennis. You you know Dennis. Dennis is yeah. is a good player. Um, the crazy part was they had Will Price on their team uh, sitting because he had transferred from George Mason. Is that where he was? Yeah, and I mean he may have been an upgrade over Schweitzer. Like that's a that was a really good team. <laughs> Uh, I mean, we had Winder and, and Paul, you know, we also had, you know, some scrubs, you know, uh, but man, that was a, that was a pretty cool high level match watching, especially watching Paul and, and Matt Anderson. That was a, a fun little battle. For sure. I was talking to PC the other day. Yeah. And he was telling me, I've actually talked to Vince Devaney about the same problem because he was a delay setter. He mm -hmm. always delayed when he'd set back. Yeah. And he said, I was asking, I was like, did you ever have problems connecting with the middles? And he's like, no, but people that played behind me never knew when it was coming. Yeah. And he, he said the same thing when he played with Pujol in Berlin. He was oh. like, sometimes he would delay. Yeah. He's like, and that's the only time I ever got thrown off. But I never really yeah. cared about people's draw or like what they did. As long as it was the same, yeah. it was fine. But that, that speaks to the visual a little bit, right? Like you're looking at something, expecting something to come, and when you change yeah. the visual, like delay the timing. It's uh, but man, Vince, God, you know he was. I don't. I, he'll probably Vince will probably tell you he was six two, but he may have been six foot. And uh, he was so good. I mean, Vince was. He was my graduating class, and we had some pretty good setters. Joe Kaliakamoa was real good. Yep. There was a kid who went to UCLA named Alex Scattereggia who was pretty good and. Riley McKibben was a really good player. But if I had to put money on any of us, uh, Vince, maybe Vince or Phil Bannon, who went to San Diego 
Bill and, Bannon, man. Yeah. That guy, was he was like the best serve in the NPSF all four yeah, years. Yeah, he had okay. this little second step lefty spike serve that was like that gnarly hybrid spin. And uh, those two were – and he held the ball a long time, and no one ever called it. So he, it just made him really deceptive. <laughs> and uh, those two were the best of us, I think. You know, Riley was really good, and Joe was really good. But uh, these two little rugrats – uh, were the best of us, Vince and, and Phil. Those two are studs. That's all about as long as you got heart. Yeah, well, those two, I'll heart. tell you what. Yeah, silent assassins, both of them. Well, Case, we have some – we definitely have some stuff to cover because me and Matt have been in a volleyball rabbit hole the last couple weeks. But oh, sure. <laughs> uh, before we get into that stuff um, – <clears throat> Welcome yeah, to the podcast. Go, yeah, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> let's go through your journey a little bit. Um, yeah, why volleyball? Where'd you get started? Yeah, well, first, uh, I've been following this thing for for a little bit, mostly because I see all these cool names, right? Rich Barraza and, and Jason Mansfield's a good friend and, and Paul. I just see these names and I'm like, man, it's really, I, I really like Paul's episode because I was on him. I was on those teams, a couple of those teams with him. And we just worshiped the guy. We thought he was God, you know, and uh, listening to him talk about some of us. And uh, I was like, whoa, I didn't know he ever thought, I thought we were just peons to him, you know, <laughs> uh, just trying not to screw it up for him. But uh, that was really cool. What you guys are doing is, is, this is awesome. So thanks for having me. But yeah, um, wow, volleyball. Um, I was, growing up, I was a basketball guy, probably like a lot of us, you know, and uh I think for a long time I was heading straight for the league, you know, I think uh, every, every month I'd get slam magazine and wait for the cover to be, Hey, move over LeBron. Here comes St. Albans country day, sixth grader, Casey Kreider. But uh, yeah, I, I was bad. I was really bad at basketball. And uh, I just, I never knew that I was bad. Uh, I just kind of played and thought, Hey, I'm probably pretty good. And I wasn't. Um, the problem was, uh, I switched schools going to seventh grade and, uh, was a medium sized fish in the smallest pond in California. And then I went, I was a tiny fish in a medium sized pond when I changed, uh, schools. So I tried out for the basketball team was a, you know, bench warmer in seventh grade and, uh, in eighth grade, kind of the same deal, but the other direction, like further down the bench, you know? And uh, that started, I think it, all of us kind of struggle in seventh and eighth grade, middle school, um, emotionally, socially, all that stuff. But for me, it was tough. That was, I look back, the, the most turbulent time of my life was probably seventh to ninth grade. And uh, a little bit of it was I was investing so much time in basketball um, and not getting much of a return uh, in terms of like opportunity and improvement and stuff like that. And I just, I didn't have much of an identity. Think, think if you invested all your time in something and just, it was so obvious you were bad at it. You just don't feel very good about yourself. So I think that stretch of my life is probably where I was at my lowest point. And, uh, my dad, so you guys both know Tyler James. Yep. Uh, yeah. T James, man, that, what a, what an incredible person. Him and I went to middle school together and I think in middle school, he was like 6'6 six, six or something ridiculous, you know, 6'6", <laughs> six, six, eighth grader. And everybody wanted him to play basketball. And he was the volleyball guy. And he's like, I don't play basketball. Basketball's lame. Volleyball's where it's at. And he's such a good guy that he, uh, 
he would always say, Hey, you should try out, you know, just for fun. You know, we need more guys. And this is Northern California middle school volleyball. I mean, go figure that that's even a thing. But uh, so I say, no way, no way. That's sports, you know, for girls. I'm a basketball player. Just wait till I coach K's, you know, prodigal son. And uh, I had the plan all mapped out and it just kept getting worse and getting worse. And it affected my grades. It affected my friends. I mean, my relationship with my family, everything was bad. And so my dad, pretty sharp guy, he kind of tricked me into trying out. Him and Tyler coordinated this little deal that I was going to try out at the end of my freshman year in high school and uh, tried out. And I think somehow, I probably just because I was, you know, I was ninth grader, six, I was just like six one or something like that. Relatively tall for a ninth grader. And so I made the team and uh, I went to the first tournament. volleyball tournament and there was like eight courts of volleyball I thought that was the most bizarre concept is that UC Davis which is where my dad's alma mater and uh, a two-day tournament so there's these things called pools where you had to play everybody and then you see where you ended up and then that'll put you in a bracket I just thought it was like the coolest idea ever and uh, we did okay I think we got fourth as a freshman team in a JV tournament and to me that was like wow you know next stop Beijing Olympics or whatever it was but um and we, uh, I remember driving back the second morning, like, you know, how early those stupid tournaments are. It's like six in the morning. I'm driving back with my, my mom and my dad. I'm sitting in the back seat. And I remember, vividly remember this. I remember saying, dad. And he goes, yeah. And I go, I never touch in a basketball again. And he goes, sounds good. And uh, I never did. <laughs> I never played again. And so then um, I didn't play club that, that fall, I'm sorry, excuse me, that, uh, summer. So then going into the fall of my sophomore years, when I started, you know, how to do the boys a little bit in the fall, a little bit in the summer for a club, I started club and that's kind of that sophomore year is kind of when I became a setter, um, and then played high school on the JV team. And, uh, I think something like, I don't know, 12 or 18 months after I first started setting, I was in the Dominican Republic in the sticks in the Dominican Republic with the boys youth national team, uh, trying to qualify for the world championships, starting in the first match against, uh, gosh, Puerto Rico, I think. And, uh, was not at all prepared for that, you know, and got pulled. And, uh, but I mean, just that ascension happened pretty fast for me, mostly because I was just obsessed. I found a group of people that I loved that were kind Uh, that kind of believed in me more than I believed in myself. And it like, when you talk about like rehabilitating yourself, volleyball did that for me a lot, like that freshman, sophomore year of high school. And then uh, junior year, senior year, played with some pretty talented guys, uh, Tyler and uh, Corey Ricks, who is another wave and in, in high school, or I'm sorry, in club. And, and, uh, and then recruiting started popping up uh, maybe, into my sophomore year. Uh, and uh, I picked uh, pretty early on, I, I don't know why, I just uh, got obsessed with volleyball and started paying attention to like the history and stuff like that. And it, it, everything came back to Marv, it, everything. Like the, the, the volleyball universe just kept coming back to Marv. And uh, so my first year of uh, Marv's camp, uh, he, I don't know, you, you guys have, Jackson, have you been to that camp? No, I never have. Yeah, Matt, I think, I don't know if you ever went, but you've worked it and um, 
you know, he, they sit and rank all the campers, like one that, I don't know if it's exactly one, but they put them in groups and stuff like that. My first year at camp, uh, I think I was camper 253 out of 253 or something like that. That's <laughs> the lowest rated camper. And I remember getting in the car. That was the first time I had ever, I signed up as a setter because my mom didn't know the positions. And that was the first time I ever set. And I remember watching Bo Daniels with the long flowy hair, you know, and uh, all that stuff and just being so enamored. And uh, I remember getting in the car at the end of the five days, which felt like 50, right? Because all those stairs. But, and I sat down and my mom goes, hey, how would you? I said it was the best experience ever. And I'm going to be the starting setter at Pepperdine one day. And she laughs, you know, she's like, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, uh, and not, not, I mean, she was supportive, but uh, it was just, and then the next year I was uh, at the camp again and probably in the, the higher group or whatever. Um, but I got recruited by a couple other places, um, had some cool conversations with uh, Fergie and, and Brad Keller at USC, uh, Ken Preston and Aaron Mansfield at Santa Barbara, Kevin Ring at San Diego, uh, Dan Fisher and Joe Wartman at UOP. And, and then I talked to Marv once, uh, mostly at the camp and said, yeah, these people, think about the people I just named, really cool people, right? Aaron, you guys had him on, he's the best. And Joe Wartman is awesome. And Fisher is awesome. They're just good people. And none of them were Marv. <laughs> and that's ultimately what it came down to. And uh, so I went to Pepperdine and uh, went to a national championship match as maybe the mascot my freshman year and uh, lost to a good Penn State team and then was fortunate enough to play the next couple of seasons and uh, was ready to coach after I was done. I, I knew from the time I was 16 that I wanted to coach volleyball. That was going to be uh, what I was going to do after college. And uh, Marv said, hey, you, you know, you had an okay career. Why not just see if you can play pro? And Marv could have told me, hey, you had a pretty good career. Why don't you see if you can just jump into traffic? And I would have done it. So uh, I ended up uh, playing for a year in Denmark, which is not a particularly competitive I, – it's not a competitive league at all. But um, I took the first contract that got offered to me, had the best experience of all time, and got the opportunity the following year uh, to play in a couple more competitive leagues. Like I think a, a mid-level team in, in Germany, in the Bundesliga. There was a relatively competitive team in Austria. And because uh, I had a good season in, in Denmark. And I said, hey, I, I did it. You know, I, I played pro and I proved I could have success, even in this little backyard league or whatever. <laughs> and uh, I want to coach. I just, I, I coached when I was in Denmark. I coached a little... Uh, I don't know, U14's team, uh, loved it, and came back and then uh, got to, to volunteer at Pepperdine for uh, maybe, I don't know, a season, if that, and Matt was there, and pretty, really talented group. I remember walking into the gym going, man, uh, I played here two or three years ago, and this is not what it looked like, you know, maybe when Paul was here, but, uh, and that was fun. I remember uh, my whole purpose on that staff was to uh, – basically monitor Nick Antoniewicz and just make sure that he was you know, having a good day, whatever that meant. And uh, I mean, the, the staff was, was awesome. It, obviously Marv's going to be good. David was kind of like, that was, I think, right at the, 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 I don't know, the eight, no, I don't want to say the apex, but like, that's when I remember looking at David going, yeah, this guy's a different breed. He's pretty special. Cause he coached me and he had just kind of gotten, we arrived, I think at the exact same time. I remember coming back on, yeah, David's a different deal. He's really special. And, and JD was there and, uh, and JD and I shared this little cubby office and Alex was there. It was, it was an awesome time. And then, um, 
yeah, from there, uh, ended up going to Stanford for two seasons as the volunteer and had a, a really cool experience there, way different than Pepperdine and lucked out with incredible people again. Jason Mansfield and, and Denise were awesome. Amy Brown, the director of Office is great. And obviously, uh, John is one of the most special people ever. And uh, that's up, kind of up by where I'm from, a couple hours from where I'm from. So that was home for me and my parents lived up there. I was never going to leave. And then my boss, Keno, called me and said, hey, you interested in this? And I go, ah, you know, maybe, maybe not. And then uh, he kind of tricked me into it. I've never been to Florida before my visit or before, before my interview. And uh, went, uh, went out there and, yeah, I signed the dotted line there. And I've been at Miami now uh, forever, uh, six seasons, something like that. Long time. I have a question uh, for you. Yeah. How do you make it work as a volunteer at Stanford, not the volleyball program or anything, but like financially living in that area? Yeah. Like, did you have to have a part-time job or anything like that? <laughs> well, yeah, so question to Casey. What's that? So I've asked you this exact question. Yeah, you know, it's uh, – <laughs> so there's a stretch at, um, at, at Pepperdine. Uh, just it's so expensive. And I wasn't there super long. I was there maybe six or eight months. Well, I was sleeping in this tiny two-door, you know, Nissan Altima, uh, kind of in that, like, uh, was it a Safeway? Is that a Safeway or a Ralph's? Oh, the Ralph's, uh, yeah. Lot? yeah. Yeah, sleeping in that parking lot. And, uh, and I loved it, you know. And I was, I, God, I, you guys, I was so bad. I was so bad as a coach. Like, all of it was bad when I was there. And, uh, but it was a good experience because I kind of learned. I got to see, like, people that were actually good. Um, so there's a little bit of like nickel and diamond, you know, uh, but I got really lucky, especially when I went to Stanford because um, a friend of a uh, family friend of a friend of mine, whatever that means, uh, had a, the older kids had just moved out. So like college and stuff like that. They're like, Hey, we got three extra bedrooms and we'll charge you 200 bucks a month or something like that. And I got done. I'll take it. And they were really, really cool people. Russ and Mary Richens was their name. And they lived in San Carlos up on the hill. You could see like the bay from my bedroom window paying 200 bucks a month. <laughs> and uh, then the, the camps, man, John uh, Dunning was way too generous with us, uh, especially the volunteers and paying for paying us for camps. And then I worked club, you know, I kind of worked at vision volleyball club, Joe rip, uh, who's the, the director of that is I've had some good bosses, but he may have been the best boss I've ever had. He was really direct, really honest, um, never offended by much, uh, wasn't afraid of conflict, but also he wasn't like aggravated, you know? Um, and uh, he paid me really well. I coached a couple of teams there, helped Jay with an 18 team and coached a little 14 team and did some clinics and stuff like that. But yeah, it was, it was never, <laughs> and then I, when you play pro, I mean, as Matt, Matt knows, uh, you put some money in the bank because uh, they pay for a lot. And I'm not this, uh, I'm not some big spender. <laughs> so I had a little bit of money that I could float on. I think by the end of that second year at Stanford, I was going, ah, I probably need to start making a little money. But um, yeah, it was a lot of good fortune, I think. Yeah, for sure. I just, I mean, I've been a volunteer. A bunch of my friends have been a volunteer. And yeah. it's always a grind no matter where you are. But I can only imagine being in the Silicon Valley in Palo Alto. Yeah. Little, well, I mean, you've done yeah. it in places that are as, I mean, it's not like, it's not like LBU's cheap, you know? Yeah, uh, so true. you've done it. I mean, you know, and it's, I, I, I bet you'd agree that it's the, the value of the experience is far outweighs the cost of whatever it takes to, to, 
to get that. You know, those end up being pretty desirable positions, I think, for oh, good yeah. reason, you know, because you, A, the, the relationships you make, B, what you learn. And, um, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's certainly not conducive to like having a family or, or probably even a girlfriend or a wife or anything like that. But uh, it, it was great. It, I loved it. All right. So now sixth season at Miami. Yeah. Um, what's the, I have so many questions. I'm being really disorganized now. Oh, that's okay. What's the, what's something that's different in your sixth year than from your first year that maybe you had something to do with implementing or uh, maybe it's just Keno evolving over time. God, yeah. Uh, you guys both know Keno, Matt, you probably know him even a little better than Jackson, but you, you've met him a couple of times, he right, Jackson? My, he was my first camp coach at the UW when I was like yep. 13. Yeah. He I just met him that one time with you, Case. Yeah, in the office, yeah. He's um, maybe the most decent man. My dad's, my dad's a, a really good man, but Kendall might be the most decent human being I've ever been around. And uh, I just – I know I, the, the story is like, man, I got to work, play for Marv, work with Marv work for John, work for Ken. At some point I'm going to get a boss who sucks. I can feel it, but uh, so far so good. Um, but yeah, he, I think I'm afforded opportunities from him that are uh, probably a little bit rare for assistant coaches, J just because, Hey, we got a really good relationship, a really good friendship. Um, but also like he cares a lot about me and he makes that very clear. And uh but to, to answer your question a little more directly, what's something that's different uh, year one to year? Well, my role is different. I was the second assistant year one and got to work with a gal named Sonia Tomasevich, who's, who was a player of Kenos at UW and is now at Arizona State as the head coach. Um, so I was the second assistant. And then when she left, uh, I'd been there like, I don't know, like a couple of weeks, it felt like probably a little less than a year. And he said, Hey, you're ready. And I go, am I? Uh, so now all of a sudden I'm the first assistant recruiting coordinator, associate head coach, that whole deal. And uh, yeah, I wasn't ready uh, for that, but he, he said, Hey, we'll, we'll weather the choppy water until, until you get there. And, um, but yeah, uh, I think, so that's changed. My role's changed. Um, I think there's two things that stand out to me that maybe I had a little bit of influence on. Um, I think we're a little more explicit year six about defining, defining is probably not the right word, but at least discussing, uh, making people aware of culturally what we want to be about. And that's something that um, I think, Matt, you can speak to this, but it was kind of like almost baked into Pepperdine. Like we didn't have a bunch of culture meetings at Pepperdine. <laughs> Uh, but culturally, I, I would have bet that Matt's teams and our teams and, you know, Winder's teams and Mayer's teams and Chip McCaw's teams and yada, yada, so on and so forth. All those guys had similar cultural experiences because Marv was the master architect of that. And if he, he's good at everything, but if he's good at anything, it might be uh, that right there. Uh, we weren't, we're, Keno and I aren't as good as that or aren't as good at that yet. And hopefully we will be one day and, and Keno's better at it than I am. But um, I really was eager to like dive into that and figure out, Hey, how do we make this culture better? It wasn't bad ever, but how do we just, you know, leverage this idea to win more. And uh, so he, he allowed me a lot of latitude in chatting with some of the girls and setting up, you know, conversations and book clubs. And we've tried a bunch of different models and stuff like that. But 
And then the other thing that stands out is uh, we, I'm a, I'm a setter. And for whatever reason, I kind of get pigeonholed into like, Hey, teach setters. Like Matt said earlier, or uh, I kind of get pigeonholed. Hey, you're teaching setters. You're running the offense. Yada, yada. And I go, Hey, coach, I'm not a setter. You know? But uh, we've gotten a little more explicit uh, with our offensive game plans. Um, how do we want to go after those guys? And uh, that's something that I always advocate for. Um, because I think we spend a lot of time studying their hitters tendencies, their rotations. And then it's like, there's these little side conversations like, yeah, let's do this more in this rotation or that in that rotation. Yeah, totally. And I said, I, I think we, if we have the ball, if we're receiving and we get to make decisions, let's flesh that out a little bit more than we are. And uh, let's include more people in the process of, of coming up with these concepts. Let's make sure the, the team is aware of it. And so um, we've, we've kind of done that. And I think it's evolved a lot like even year to year, every year, it's a little different, but um, that's something that I'm pretty proud of that. I think we do an okay job of is preparing on the offensive side of things. How are we going to go after them when they're serving uh, and blocking and defending? How are we going to try to side out against them? So those are two things off the top of my head. Sweet. Yeah. Interesting. I've never thought of it in the reverse. Yeah. Like I've never, for me, when I'm scouting and I've been like sure. this forever, when I watch middles, because you know Marv in his middles, so like yeah, they'll just watch guys and be like, "Oh man, that guy like you know he yep. he couldn't hit water if he fell out of a boat." I'm like, "What the hell is yep. this guy seeing that I'm not seeing?" Like I think he's he's, big, he's touching everything, right? And then all of a sudden, I like see this guy just keeps looking up, and I'm like, "Oh, he has no idea what's going on like in front of him." Yeah. So as long as you don't go at him, you can win, right? And then like just being around a guy like that. I started thinking of the game so much differently and how I can attack people like what you're saying versus like yeah. letting the game come to me and then figuring it out. I was like, how can I just attack? Sure. And then having a guy like Winder where he's like, you are on the offensive, even when yeah. you're on the defensive, yeah. like how can you score points? And I was like, all yeah. right, like I'm going to become the most aggressive human being ever with this yeah. guy around me. And then like we've talked about it before. And then Dave taught me how he taught me the X's and O's. Sure. Well, it, it, Matt, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but one of the things to me that always stood out about you uh, is you were, uh, it seemed like most concerned, the most important thing to you was figuring out how to win. And that was, I don't know if that was natural to you or, or that came from mom because mom was gnarly, <laughs> but yeah. uh, you, it always seemed like, to me like you were really hypersensitive to how can I help us win. And I was unfortunately a little bit the opposite of that. I was always concerned with how do I move? Uh, like what do I know it sounds so stupid right but I was like my first thought would be like was my extension even and that's I think where a little bit of this robotic like stiff nature I had came from but it was always like did I was my footwork good and was this right and uh and I think that uh you had a knack or have a knack I should say for figuring out how to win a lot better than I ever did so what I've had to do as a coach uh, is I've had to proceduralize it. I think that's the word. Proceduralize it a little bit where we actually, like you would scout opponents' rotations and you would chart them. We actually chart their blockers. So our setter and, and I will sit down and we chart by uh, the route that the middle runs and the situation that they're in. So first ball, side out, good pass, medium pass, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll chart. And then we'll have to go back and look at those charts and go, what are the concepts that stand out? Okay, well, when we run this, you know, 31, they're fronting it and she's bad to her left. So we know conceptually speaking, 
that we can go 31 red spread. And uh, depending on who our attacker is and their left front blocker, he's got to play the game, right? Put this puzzle together. But I always felt like watching you play and being around you a little bit, um, uh, that you kind of, that stuff was a little more intuitive to you. And I don't know if you agree with that, but it felt like you, you got connected to that stuff way easier than I did. I just never, I fear a lot of things. I'm not going to say like, Oh, I'm fearless. Like, uh, I'm, I'm like this incredibly aggressive person or anything, but I never feared like, okay, this game plan's not working. Dump it. Like, let's start from scratch mid game. And like, I've done that plenty of times in my life where like the game plan is like gap red or like gap go. We're just going to overload them. And then like, they just, you know, they get the beat on it. And I'm like, all right, we're going one go for the rest of the game. Like until they have to adapt and then we can readapt. Yeah. But if there's anything I've learned for sure, like the faster you can adapt, like the faster, if you can practice everything, and be comfortable enough. You don't have yeah. to be completely comfortable, but just comfortable enough with your attackers where you can scrap a whole plan sure. and say, like, this isn't going to work. This isn't how we're going to like win tonight. We got to yeah. go with something else. Then you got to do it. Because, yeah, you're at, absolutely, you have to do whatever you have to do to win. And, like, yeah. if that's totally out of your comfort zone, it's only for one match. Sure. So it's like, all right, we can go back. In practice, we'll figure it out, what the hell's going on, like what's wrong. But for right now, we got to figure out a way to win. Yeah. It's cool listening to you talk because uh, there's an academic concept that's like super gnarly, trying to <laughs> sort through it. It's, uh, it's impossible for somebody like me, you know. Uh, it, it'd take me 10 more years of education to figure out. But it's this guy, Scott Kelso, talks about metastability and these what are called attractor states, what are areas of comfort, whether it's movement or tactics or strategy or whatever it is. Um, and uh, metastability is you, you make those attractor states a little more shallow, meaning getting, you can get to, to these other solutions uh, much easier. So what you're describing there is like, it'd be good to be good at most of it. You know, as long as it's a, it is of within the realm of function, you know, as long as it can function, let's be good at good enough at all of it. So if something presents itself, that's really challenging, then we can just go to a different attractor state. And, and what I felt like I did having learned about this stuff later is I just kept digging <laughs> the same attractor state deeper and deeper thinking, yeah, this is how I'm going to do it. And then I'm stuck, you know, in this giant hole, which feels real comfortable until you lose. Uh, but yeah, that's a, uh, I, I, it's cool to hear you say that because I think it's actually, you know, a concept that's well regarded academically. Yeah. I just see, I, I try to study great athletes, not great volleyball players, just great athletes. Sure. And I feel like their ability to adapt on the fly, it, like you listen to Tom Brady and Bill Belichick sure. and they just, they're constantly adapting Yeah, constantly, regardless well, of what's thrown at them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the, the, the example I think of is Jordan. Like, yeah, like so when he was a, a kid, when he was a kid, he was this freak athlete who would run around people and dunk on him. And then by the time he was 34, 35, he was this, you know, grown ass yeah. man. And he oh, was yeah. more of a post player than anything. Yeah. Uh, but you watch like, obviously volleyball would be like the best example, but you watch a center like Micah Christensen. And I asked him about this. I was like, I feel like the way you used to play, I'm not saying like you were overly aggressive or you were wild, not by any means. You've always been a disciplined guy, but you used to be kind of wild and rambunctious. 
sure. like a couple of years ago. I was like, is there, did you dial it down? Was it for health reasons? Like you just felt like this wasn't. Didn't he go after a guy through the net or something like that? Like, wasn't there. A- yeah, he did. Yeah. No, but I'm just saying, even the way he set, like he used to just sure. fly through balls. Sure. You know, like he would just run full speed for everything. And I was like, man, I don't know how long, I don't think it's sustainable <laughs> to play like this. And so I asked him, I was like, what happened? And he was like, honestly, just experience, you know, like the game is just coming to me. Yeah. And so like, I know he knows when to pick and choose like, okay, now I can go run to this ball and be a little bit more aggressive. can be a little bit more patient in this situation. I was like, yeah, man, you're just, you're adapting. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I love that word. Yeah. I love that. But man, how good is he? He is, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, mean, I think he's the best in the world. And if he's not yeah. the best in the world, then he's number one B or two or three, whatever. Oh, he's yeah. so, and the cool thing was, is he's a magnet personality wise. Like yes. it just, I remember being at a tryout that he was at kind of right before they put him on the national, the, the men's national team full time. And I remember just watching him going, God, I, I want to get in there and play around this guy. Cause he's just <laughs> that, that awesome. And yeah. I never really interacted with him much, but from afar, I would just say, Hey, if you don't know what to do, be like Mike, you know? Yeah. I mean, he's got, he's got it all. Yeah. He does. Pretty cool. He's just one of those people. And I'm like, how can I uh, – yeah, so why not pick that guy's brain? Yeah, for sure. It makes sense to me, you know. Yeah. But awesome. Um, okay, so I know you've been on – you were just on John's podcast, Coach Your Brains Out, so I don't want to just redo all the questions they did and sure, all yeah. that stuff. But you are continually trying to learn about things outside of volleyball, things in academia – where did that start for you? Because from what I understand, you didn't enjoy, you didn't love high school studying. You didn't love you didn't love school and college even. No, I was I was a trash student. You guys, <laughs> I was so I was I was embarrassing. I look back and I go, man, if my kid acted like I did, I would probably somebody be calling you know CPS or something like that. I just it's embarrassing. I was not a good student, and and what it was was that I just. I think two things. I liked controlling my own learning. I've always kind of been like that as opposed to somebody saying, Hey, just read this or do that. And you'll learn. Forget that. I'll, I'll figure it out. Um, and also it, like a lot of that stuff just didn't interest me. And that, what a lame excuse. Like <laughs> I'm not going to do it cause it doesn't interest me, but that's, that's kind of how I was up until probably 24, 25, something like that. Um, so what was know, the shift? God, well, truthfully, I don't know if there has been a huge one. Um, I think I'm a little more mature in that, like, I can, I'm able to go, this isn't enjoyable, but I'll do it. But the, the, all the motor behavior stuff is just like, when my girlfriend wants to watch, you know, Pretty Little Liars or whatever, I'd rather read a journal, entry, or journal article from Keith Davids and Fabian Oda. That, that's more interesting to me. So it just, it happens to be something that I find fascinating. So I, I wish I could say like, yeah, it's this, <laughs> this super gnarly grind. I just, I, I, when I've got nothing else to do, I, that's what I prefer to do, you know? Kind of like, I would imagine Matt, you just, I've, I've met yeah. ma- maybe Maddie, and that's why you guys are so good for each other. You two would just watch volleyball and just watch volleyball and watch volleyball and watch volleyball. I, I, I'm, I don't watch that much volleyball, you know? And uh, so I, I think it's just, for me, my hobby, so to speak, is that, I'm interested that in that, but how I got into it, um, I, I did Mars little coaching class. Did you, did you take that, Matt? Yep. 
Yeah, it was an awesome class. I mean, like, I, it was I the best Marv, class I took at Pepperdine. Yeah, but whatever they're paying, whatever they're paying Marv is uh, way too much because he just like shells it out to a bunch of ridiculously cool uh, guest speakers every week. And uh, but yeah, that I think I got a little taste of the motor behavior stuff from Carl and Marv, and that's like the first two or three weeks of that class. Um, and. Uh, I think from there, um, what it ended up being kind of over time was I just kept hearing coaches say, well, studies show, or the science says, and uh, everybody wanted to claim that they were coaching via science. And uh, it was kind of the way to protect yourself, right? Well, you can't argue with my methods because I, I heard a, a coach the other day say, well, you know, it's not my opinion. This is science. You can't argue with it. And uh, man, it made my, my blood boil a little bit, but what basically what it came down to was I felt like our entire community was relatively hollow, at least for myself in that I would say, Hey, look, science, I'm coaching with science. And then people go, okay, what's the science? And I go, science, you know, I I don't know. (laughs) And uh, so to me, I just got kind of tired of myself. I got tired with the coaching community in general, because I think as coaches uh, it's really hard not to let your ego get away from you. I struggle with that a lot. Um, and we tend to fancy ourselves experts in like all the different disciplines of coaching. Like we're motor behavior experts and we're analytics experts and we're biomechanics experts and we're sports medicine experts. We're experts at everything, right? When the reality is good coaching isn't being an expert in any of those, those fields. It's just being able to reconcile each of those fields against each other, you know, functionally. We don't have to be an expert in motor behavior or analytics to be a be- the best coach ever. You just have to have some understanding of this and this and this and enough understanding to, to put together a relatively functional model. Um, but I just, I got tired of people proclaiming that they, they, they were coaching by science or knew the science without actually knowing it, including myself included. So I just started grinding on that stuff and reading it and reading textbooks and not understanding a single word because it's, way way over the top with the language and stuff like that and uh i think one of the best things i ever did was i just made this commitment that i wasn't going to have another coach translate science for me i was going to have scientists translate science for me i was going to have researchers the people who wrote the papers translated for me so um yeah it it was kind of born out of a to your point i think we all want to get better uh but B, I just got frustrated hearing people say, yeah, well, studies show. And you go, well, what studies? And they, they don't know. I don't know. So I wanted to know. I wanted to be able to say, yeah, these studies. You know, this person this year in this paper uh, did this study. And here's what, what came of it. So, um, yeah, just, uh, I don't know, being a young, dumb punk, thinking I could figure out the world. And what a stupid idea that was. <laughs> I, I just set myself back like five years trying to figure it out. But it's been, it's been a lot of fun. A lot of really cool people on that side of the, the equation in terms of the academic and, and uh, scientific community, there's some really cool people out there who've been awesome to me. So something you were talking about on Coach Your Brains Out is ecological dynamics. Yeah. And uh, I've been reading up on it a little bit. I definitely don't have a full understanding. Why would, why would you do that? That's a terrible <laughs> idea. Yeah. Uh, and also yeah. some other interesting things related to that, the constraints-led approach, things like yeah. that. Um, I guess my question is, what does that, what does that look like in a practice setting versus the kind of 
the way most of us volleyball coaches coach, which is with immediate feedback, uh, prescriptive feedback. That's a lot of times internal. Yeah. Um, yeah, guys, it was interesting. Um, I, I got a, a text message after that podcast aired a couple, maybe a week or a couple weeks ago, something like that. And uh, it was somebody, it was really nice. A friend of mine said, Hey, you're doing a, a really good job carving out a space, you know, a unique space for yourself here by studying this stuff. And I was like, Oh crap. I don't want to be the ecological be that guy, dude. You're going to be the guy yeah, exactly. everybody goes to now. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, I don't want to like, my, 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 the idea was never to like attach my name uh, to some theory or something like that. I just tried to learn the, the field, the context of the field, make sure I understood it. And, and that was fun for me and important to me. So, um, but by no means should anybody ever think that I'm like the ecological dynamics yeah. guy. I, I, there's people out there who understand it way better, both I think in coaching and then also on the, obviously on the academic side. Um, but also I, I think it's a, it's just important to know. It's not, it, I'm not, I'm not advocating for, yeah, just do this. I think it's just good stuff to know. And then you can kind of reconcile it yourself. But, um, what does it look like in practice? Uh, or an application. So really the, the dichotomy here, sometimes falsely so, but the, the contrast here is like this prescriptive approach versus a self-organized approach. So this idea that like the coach, on the prescriptive side, the coach is the center of, of the knowledge and it's their job to be at the center of the experience and disseminate the knowledge to the athletes through instruction, through demonstration, through corrective, you know, augmented feedback, all that stuff that you, you just mentioned. Um, the alternative is this self-organized approach, um, which the implications of that are, uh, okay, there's probably, and, and Matt touched on this a little bit before when he was talking about the, the draw or you call it presenting, um, the presentation of the setter. Um, there's probably not one optimal uh, technique, movement, solution, whatever, uh, for each skill, A, for every performer, and B, even one for each individual performer. There, there's, when, we, when you actually observe high-level performance, A, th there's lots of different variations. Now, there's some aspects of invariance, right? I would imagine, that that they all tend to set with two hands for the most part. Yep. Um, but uh, they, to, to Matt's earlier point, some, some of them draw earlier, some of them draw later, and uh, there's variability there. And uh, also you'd probably, to, to Matt's point about Bruno, there's, there's variability within each performer. Like sometimes it's early, sometimes it's late. And uh, so this idea that, okay, there's probably not an optimal technique and there's probably, and there's, there's lots of ways to solve these problems. And uh, we'd want to promote uh, this, self-organization towards those solutions and as many of them as possible that's what degeneracy is called it's another ridiculously complicated term that basically says i have lots of ways to solve the same problem so in this case i can draw earlier i can draw later i can draw in between yada yada so on and so forth and uh degeneracy is a biological phenomenon that's observed you know, throughout uh in, in tons of different instances at like the cellular level all the way up to like you go study different species uh degeneracy is a, is a very important part of like just even survival you know if you're looking at evolutionary biology and stuff like that 
Um, but if you were to apply it, the, the, the contrast is going to be, okay, do I tell the kids what they do and what they have to do? Now, a lot of times that includes some isolated practice, which I think our sport does a good job of typically avoiding. We don't, we don't tend to get into like, let's separate out what we would call part practice. You may have heard the whole versus part debate. Um, oftentimes it kind of looks like, you know, we're just going to have you bump the ball back and forth and uh, be really specific. Um, the, the, the main tenant, I think, when you talk about the constraints led approach is that uh, practice for the, for the athletes is a search or exploration. It's not a perfection of stuff. Practice should be something where I'm going in trying to find as many ways to solve these problems, be they movement problems, tactical problems, so on and so forth. Like for example, at this point, Matt, with his level of ability, probably uh, is going to be most concerned with solving like specific tactical situational problems uh, as opposed to like, you know, do I need to run to the ball specifically like this uh, or, or handle the ball exactly like that you watch him play and, and he's going to, I mean, he's got those things. He's got enough degeneracy there that he can go uh, solve those problems kind of implicitly without having to go, how do I solve this? The, the things he has to spend his time thinking about are probably more tactical, strategic, situational things. Um, but it, it, you can scale it all the way down to younger kids where they're just looking for ways to solve how to bonk the ball to the setter. And the, the, the trick is designing the activity in a way that allows the activity, the environment, the task, whatever you want to call it, uh, to be the main means uh, of learning. Or, or I don't like the word teaching, but learning. That's the engine that, that, that guides learning and not where the coach is at the center of it saying, you have to do this. No, 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 you did it wrong. Fix it like this. Um, so I think that uh, you kind of went really roundabout there, but the, the main difference is that uh, you're in a, in a traditional prescriptive approach, you're probably going to see some stuff that's linear. Like we're going to start with this part of the movement. Uh, you hear that a lot. Uh, like first we have to learn how to move, then we have to learn how to see, and then we have to learn how to move and see in specific situations. I think the, the theoretical background of ecological dynamics, which is kind of expressed as the constraints that approach would say, you can't really separate move, moving and seeing uh, because we're always perceiving. It's called a perception action coupling. We're always perceiving. So you can go bonk the ball against the wall a bunch. It's not like you're not perceiving there. You're just perceiving something that's static or uh, so. It, 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 yeah. I think that uh, you just, what it looks like at its, you know, probably most casual level is lots of little activities that are designed uh, with, in my opinion, hopefully pretty, pretty high degrees of nuance and intention and uh, specificity to each individual problem that, that these kids are struggling with. And then uh you know, encouraging them to explore, directing their focus of attention, like Gabby Wolf stuff externally, which a constraints-led approach fits in very nicely with, in my opinion, the external focus of attention stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, it's uh, I think a lot of times people get offended by it. I don't think it's quite as offensive as people try to make it out to be. Um, I just think that it's, it can be a little more challenging trying to figure out that, for example, the guy, there's a guy, Ismael Guerrero, who's like the head of methodology at FC Barcelona for La Masia, the, the, the youth academy where Xavi and Iniesta and Lionel Messi came up. 
And what he talks about, they use this approach, this theoretical underpinning to govern most of their teaching of these young kids. And what he talks about is what we have to figure out as coaches is ways to speak to the athletes through the activity, not through conversation. We don't instruct them what to do, but we help them get better by speaking to them through the activity. And uh, I, I think that's a really elegant concept. Uh, but yeah, I think people, they get really sensitive initially when you bring this up and you go, yeah, well, you're already using constrained activities. You just happen to be interjecting before the, the athlete can kind of attune to the right information and telling them what to do. If you just stop doing that quite as much, you're, you're basically there, you know? Yeah, but I, I know with the way I coach usually, and I'm sure most coaches, like we, we point their attention to one specific part of the activity or whatever, whether it be straight arms or presenterly, whatever it is. And that kind of takes away from them being able to figure out other things on their own. And maybe their learning is at a higher rate than my teaching, you know, so I might be taken away from them. Well, there, there's a, there's a guy named Mark Williams, who's a professor of kinesiology, maybe the chair of the department or something like that at university of Utah. And actually he was just on John's podcast. He's a really cool guy. I think if you guys ever get a chance to reach out to him, he just wrote a book called the best, uh, which is excellent. You get a chance to read that. Um, but he talks about this paradox of learning that like prescriptive instruction, what tends to happen is like, I, I say, Hey Jackson, you know, hold your arms like this or move your feet like that. And we see improvement and we go, look, I helped. Jackson's now getting better. You know, the, the paradox comes in uh, retention. So when, when it, when it gets tested later, the, these instructions tend to promote what's called explicit learning. And uh, there's this thing that Rich Masters came up with in 1992 called the reinvestment theory. It's again, a bunch of academic jargon, but basically if you learn something explicitly, um, it tends to fall apart in high stress, high leverage, high anxiety situations. Uh, so that could be because of the, the score. It could be because you're not playing well. It could be because a teammate or a coach is getting after you pretty good. Uh, the fans are going to have to just whenever stress or th those movements tend to break down a lot more than implicitly learned uh, movements. And so there's this paradox there that if I instruct performance and practice goes up, if I, if I prescribe performance and practice goes up. And then when it's been evaluated later, a lot of times that stuff falls apart, uh, so to speak. And uh, so there's this paradox. We want them to get better, but we have to understand the time scale on, over which learning occurs, which is probably a lot longer than we prefer. I mean, learning takes a long, long time. If we went, if we, you always hear that, we gotta get better 1% every day. And it'd be impossible to measure that until, you know, months into the future. Go, did we actually get 1% every day? But uh, yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, it just, uh, there's this paradox that exists that Mark Williams talks about. I think he talks about it on his podcast uh, so that he'd be better at describing it than I would. But uh, there's some, a lot of value to implicitly learned uh, external focus of attention stuff, uh, less prescriptive stuff. Uh, yeah. yeah, certainly. Matt, get in put here. A lot of people out of jobs, man. Everybody, <laughs> who, everybody who's doing private coaching right now is like, dude, screw this guy. He is putting yeah. – because that's all private coaching is, is block yep. practice, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, Matt, yeah. you nailed it. And uh, it's not – I, I – I, I certainly, again, this is why I want to be really clear that I'm not like, hey, I'm, in it. I'm hitching my wagon to ecological dynamics by any stretch. And I've gotten some 
some blowback a little bit from that podcast where people are going, yeah, this is, yeah, this is nonsense. <laughs> I had one guy go, this is a fad. And I'm like, wow, man, Nikolai Bernstein was in the twenties and thirties and Gibson was in the sixties and seventies and Newell was in the eighties and Davids is in the nineties. And yeah, I mean, it's been around almost a hundred years. So uh, at some point if it's going away, it's, it hasn't, we haven't seen that yet, but I just, I, I, I don't, <laughs> I'm not trying to like, you know, move any part of the, the coaching industry or anything like that. But to your point, Matt, yeah, there's, there's uh, the, my, my girlfriend, for example, she gives lots of individual lessons and she goes, well, I'm listening to you talk about this stuff. And now what do I do? And I go, don't, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm like, yeah, basically get more kids involved so you can create little activities. Um, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's, there's some people that I'm not going to be the most popular guy. <laughs> I think. No, but it, I mean, it makes a lot of, just looking back at my own experience and then thinking back on all these athletic documentaries that I've seen and heard over the years, Wayne Gretzky is the one that keeps like, he stands out the most or like most of these like Cuban Dominican athletes that play baseball. Sure. Right. And they're just like, you see these awesome videos of these guys hitting like pennies out of the sky. And they're like, you know, somebody's just throwing it to them. It's like, nobody told them to do that. They're just like, ah, if I can do this, I could get a baseball. Yeah. Or you hear about Neymar and Ronaldinho and Ronaldo growing up in the favelas and playing yeah. soccer and they just figure it out. And that's like that traditional creative flow. And we've had, yeah. I don't know this, your 30th guest. All right. And of all the athletes that we've had come on, including myself, it's got to be 15 people have been like, yeah, you know, I just went into the gym. I started bumping a ball against the wall and somebody decided, oh, they look lonely. I, I guess I'll pepper with them. And like you hear Mike Ma talk about his experience and he's like, we passed free balls for six years. That's all we did in practice. And it was just like bounce lines. That's yep. all they did was just like figure out how to play volleyball yep. on their own. So it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And kids are really smart. And if you're inherently competitive, you will find a game with your teammates and how to compete. Yep. Like I know I do that when we're serving because serving gets so boring. So yep. it's like, all right, whoever can hit that five corner first, like beers are like on everybody else. You know what I mean? Yep. Or whatever game you can find to like make it a little bit more interesting and then it gets competitive and then there's some stress and it's, you know. So, so what if, what if as a coach, you co-opted that exact sentiment, exactly what you're talking about right there. Yeah. Where, well, that's where what my that, mom used to do. She'd be like, well then make it fun. I don't know. Figure it out. Andy, Murray, Andy Murray's mom was, was his coach for a long time and she was very similar. She just created these little games that exposed all these parts of, his game that weren't great when he was little and then he'd have to solve them. And it's like, she, she didn't know, I didn't know what to tell him, but if I just put him in that situation a lot, then if he was in it long enough, he'd figure it out, you know, yeah. but and I uh, do that I, with all the setters that I work with. Like yeah. I'll just start throwing balls. Coaches do this all the time and they won't admit to it, but we, we are all guilty of it. Sure. I always throw balls behind kids. Okay. Cause I want to see how they move behind. Sure. Nobody sure. ever moves well behind ever sure. from the start right yep so then i stop and i'm like all right i just need you to run i never yep. say there's no steps it's like just run run as fast as you can to get to this ball 
And then all of a sudden I start moving it in a little bit more every like toss, you know, uh-huh. and then they're like, I'm getting it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you guys are teachers, you know? like, you're really figuring it out over there. But that's cause that's the stuff I remember distinctly 15, 16 years old. My mom used to do the same crap. She'd, it would start way off the court. And then all of a sudden I was kind of like in the middle or in yeah. that third. And I was like, Oh my God, she duped me into just running to every ball. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, that's what you're describing. You're, you're giving somebody a problem and encouraging them to solve it. And, and uh, I, I listened uh, to the chat you guys had with John and Jackson, you nailed it. Uh, it's just, it's, a, it's leveraging the concept of guided discovery to what I would consider its logical conclusion. And, and guided discovery is not going to include a bunch of, hey, do this, look over there, because that's, that's not discovery that's uh just an execution of some instruction and but you 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 design the activity in the in in such a way that it's not just strict discovery learning that we could get into differential learning which is mostly discovery learning that's like this really bizarre academic concept uh where you do all sorts of weird stuff uh but it there is there's evidence that it that it works i mean the guy the main theorist wolfgang schulhorn which is a ridiculous name, but he, uh, he's run a number of studies that show the benefits of differential learning. But uh, this is a guided discovery approach. And uh, what I love about it personally is it just, one, like I mentioned before, one of the things I think all coaches struggle with is our egos. We are the center of the knowledge universe and we all think we know best. And uh, what this approach encourages is putting the athlete at the center of the experience, studying the athlete, and then designing the environment around that athlete and the tasks that are around that athlete in such a way that that allows them to learn. And it it doesn't make you it, like I, I I've always thought this for learning to occur, a, a teacher doesn't have to be present. In fact, most of the things we learn in life, a teacher is not present. We learn them by experiencing them. But for teaching to occur, a learner must be present, right? So, so if you consider those two equations, who's the, the indispensable actor there? Well, it's the learner. So let's put the learner at the center of it. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I think, uh, I, I don't understand it well enough yet. I'm, I'm working on getting a, a degree in it at some point and uh, probably take a while. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's, it's, if nothing else, to me, it's fascinating stuff, you know, and it's, it provides a little more context to this motor learning, motor behavior field than I was exposed to. Once upon a time, it was like schema theory, Richard Schmidt, like it was presented to me that the Fitz and Posner cognitive, associative, autonomous phases of learning were fact, like that's factually how people learn. And it wasn't until three years ago where I go, whoa, there's like a dozen models for learning. That happened to be one of them. And I think it was uh, Paul Fitz and Richard Schmidt and Jack Adams all kind of collaborated together. So that's where we connected those things. But uh, I just, to me, it's, it's an important part of this, the context of this motor behavior field that I think people should be exposed to. And then from there, if you go, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to prescribe, go nuts. You know, there's so many good coaches that have had success prescribing and uh, being at the center of it, that it's obviously a model that can work as well. Um, so, but yeah, interesting stuff, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. 
I'm really, I, I don't know how you guys are with teaching. I'm just thinking setters, obviously, because that's where I spend a majority of my time is setters and middles. But I, it probably stems from my personality, like we were talking about with Thorny and Hildebrand. Like they, you teach people what you know, for the most part. Right. And um, so I like teaching so I lost kids. lost you a little bit. Sorry, can you hear me now? Yep. Okay, great. So I was just saying how, like, uh, when you teach, you obviously it's a part of you. So when I teach setting, a lot of it is based on what I know and what I've experienced and what works best for me. Like I was saying with Hildebrand and Thorny, like they kind of teach what they know because it's obviously guided them to some pretty good places. But for me, I for me personally, I don't know if this coincides with this theory of thought, but I like teaching kids in arsenal. And then whatever works, works. So like if you're a one foot setter, then you are a one foot setter. And if you're a two foot setter, then you're a two foot setter. And like, I'm just like, hey, if that gives you more rhythm and that's where your cadence is, that's who you are, kid. Like, and I used, for sure, I used to be, when I first met Marv and I discovered motor learning, I was like, there's one way, this is how it's gotta go, you know? And then as I've played in Europe, I've been like, you know, like, People could do it. Oh, there's a lot of different ways to do one thing. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I would even, you would even suggest that, that Marv uh, was really good about allowing for variability. I mean, Paul tossed with his right hand despite yeah. sort of left, left handed. And uh, I think, you know, his approach looked different than Corey Ricks and uh, you set differently than I did. And I always felt like he was pretty good about allowing for, some space for us to explore and, and get, find things that are comfortable and authentic is probably a good way to say it. But yeah, Matt, what you're describing, did, did, that fits perfectly. The, the thing that I would push even further is uh, I, would, I would encourage exposure to as much as possible. Um, and this is where uh, this concept, like you see a lot, uh, there's this illicit transference that goes on where we use the aggregate to describe each individual uh, units in, in the data set, which in this case, we look at the best setters in the world and we go, what do they all do the same? Oh, well, they all kind of do this. They all kind of do that. And we end up coming up like 70% of them do this and 60% of them do that. And let's do those things. Right. And I think you, you should look at it differently. Personally, I think that it should be, you look at the best setters in the world and look at all the things they do differently. Like uh, to your point, when do they draw and do they go off one foot or two feet and, and look for the things that they do differently. And then go back to our athletes and encourage variability, exploration, search in those areas. Look for, encourage your athletes to go try as much as possible. Uh, and to, your, to your example, Matt, uh, try one foot and two feet. And let's just roll with that for a while. And at some point, something will become comfortable and we'll go, done. Yeah, you do that. But instead, what we do is we look at it and go, okay, at the highest levels, 70% of hitters do this and 60% uh, of hitters do that. And so let's get those things and then create this little amalgamation of, uh, uh, of a model. And then that's what everybody has to do all the time yeah, because that's what the best in the world do. I would, I flip it. I would rather look at what they all do differently and go, let's explore all those areas because the reality is if they're all doing something the same, the chances are very high that we'll end up doing it that way, regardless of if we're told or not. Yeah, absolutely.
good point. I've, uh, I remember I talked to Marv probably, I don't know, three, four or five years ago now. Jeez. And you know, I, was talk- I was talking about approaches. And I was sure. like, you know, Marv, I just think going outside in is overrated. <laughs> I was like, I think you should go on a straight line. I think you should start inside and just walk into it. And he goes, you know who used to do that, Matt? And he's about to get a hip surgery next summer. And I was like, I have, I was like, I have no idea. And he goes, Karch Karai. And I was like, oh, I knew I was onto something here. <laughs> you know, but like, because I just noticed so many guys, because Vital's huge on it, Vital Heinen. He just has guys yeah. like right on the line and they just walk in and they just use their hips. Like, wherever their hips are facing, like, they just pound that way. And I was like, man, it feels like you'd have some great range if you just walk in. And if you have the ability to pull it down the line across your body, like, that's that's tough to stop. Because you have to take ball yeah. as a blocker. I was like, man, guys that you have to take ball against, it's exhausting. If you have to help. Yeah. One of the things that it does, I think, is it, it creates this – this phenomenon that we don't see as much on the women's side, whereas you just hit off the line of your approach and uh, hitting off the line of your approach is a pretty valuable skill. In the men's game, it happens way more frequently, but what I would encourage is do both. Yeah. Come inside out, outside in, yeah. and uh, we'll, we'll solve this. You'll solve this and I'll be uh, a tool and an aid to help you solve this, but you're going to solve it. And it's not going to come from me. It's not going to be me saying, go outside in. It's not going to be me saying, come but we'll solve it. And then you made the, the point about the hip surgery. That's where I'm way behind in understanding this stuff is what happens if we know they're doing something that could hurt them, right? They're landing on one leg a lot. Megan Courtney you know, is the best example of that. Yeah. And, and you go, man, uh, then we may have to step in and instruct them, hey, you can't do that. So let's, mm-hmm. let's parse out a couple of alternatives. Let's explore that little bandwidth there. But we, we got a girl who was, uh, was goofy-footed blocking. She was, she was blocking to her right and got the footwork backwards. And I'm going, God, she's got her footwork backwards, footwork backwards, footwork backwards. And she's stuffing everything. I mean, 12, 15 balls uh, per practice, you know, in competitive games. I mean, she's stuffing everything, which I wonder what that says about our hitters, but that's probably for a different time. <laughs> but uh, she's stuffing it. And then all of a sudden I start looking. She goes, yeah, I'm starting to get knee pain. And you look and she's landing really stiff on the right leg and it's like man if somebody bumps you or you slip so she we had to change the focus from an external focus to an internal focus say hey let's get this this movement pattern down strictly for safety and then it's stuffing one ball of practice three balls of practice five balls of practice and you're going oh crap and we just you know so but i think uh the health thing is something that has to I mean, you're seeing it a lot concussions are an issue and ACLs are an issue and the health thing is a concern. So you, you can't just go out, figure it out and just go run yourself ragged. And so you're never able to play, but uh, it's tough, dude. We're figuring this stuff out and making it all fit together is not easy. That's coaching. I think that's why, you know, that's why Dave Hunt's getting paid the big bucks. I just hope more people use this methodology a little bit more. Cause right now, I mean, talk about fads. AAU is a fad. Club volleyball is a fad. That is a sure. fad. Right. And like these, what's interesting is there's people coming up with more creative things, right? Like, Hey, if I implement box jumps into attacking or whatever, like this looks so cool. And now this will catch fire. And 
people are going to want to come play for my club because it looks cool, but it doesn't actually do anything, you know, versus if what you, what you're saying, if you were to do that with kids, which I know a lot of, for example, 949, I talked to their U12 coach. I was talking to Tom Hoff too. I was like, Hey, how do you teach arm swings? And he's like, we give them a ball and we say, throw the ball. You know, and like they teach them to be athletes like they teach them to do somersaults and they teach them how to land on one leg and do all these things and their parents hate it because yep. it's not volleyball yeah and they're like well this isn't about volleyball they have to learn to understand themselves first and like their their motor skills before they can even pass sure you know and so, i thought that, i thought that was great and i was like man but that's not the fad yeah yeah, it was, it's funny you say that because Keno played in Brazil. Keno was a really good player. Like, yeah. I don't think people realize that. He was on the national team, and he was a really good player. And he was in Brazil playing professionally. And uh, they would practice. And then it was a sports club, right? So they have different age groups. and whatever. Occasionally, he'd get to practice early and be the little kids. It's in Brazil, and volleyball is a big deal. And he goes, at the end of every U12 boys volleyball practice for this club that he played at, they had this, you know, coach uh, who was, I guess, pretty good. And uh, they would lower the net to like almost as low as, almost like getting close to tennis height, right? And he would toss some balls and they would just have this 30 minute long competition. Who could bounce it highest on the wall? The coach never said, go slow to pass. He didn't say, move your arm like this. And they just did that every day for, and these are 12 girls, so they can go for two hours. And, and uh, he goes, this is our jump training. Like we're just telling them, yeah, we're gonna, and this is our strength training for the shoulder. And uh, then it's incredible how quickly they learn, like, man, I got to do these a couple of things, even without thinking about it. I just learned that if I wanted to get up as high as possible on the wall, I better do it like this, and I better do it like that. And, and uh, he, he talked to the, the, the coach occasionally. He's like, hey, so what are you teaching them? He goes, I'm teaching him to hit it up on the wall. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, what, what, like, what, what are they focusing on? What's their mechanics? He goes, I just got to hit it up there. Bounce it up there as high as you can. And uh, he's like, the, 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 in the club, they would do that. He's like, it wasn't 30 minutes, but 10 minutes at the end of every practice. And he's like, yeah, you just kind of self-organize towards this, uh, the optimal solution for this task, which happened to be bounce it up as high on the wall as possible. So you couldn't hit it too flat. So you had to jump high. And you had to hit it hard to get it to bounce, and um, same, same, all the same concept, you know. Yeah. 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 Man, it's like uh, it's uh, now that you now like thinking about it, I'm like, man, America's in a scary place. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you say that. The guy, the guy who's uh, going to be my advisor for this PhD program, and Keith Davids, um, and he's like one of the people. I got really lucky. He's one of the people who like literally wrote the textbook on this stuff. And uh, he's a really, really kind of prominent figure in this. And uh, he, so a lot of this, this approach, uh, the ecological dynamic stuff is really prominent in England, in Australia, in uh, Portugal, in parts of Eastern Europe. It's really prominent in Canada uh, for different sports, you know, depending on the sport. Uh, but he's like, yeah, Casey, the, the United States is kind of the final frontier. The United States has taken a more cognitive psychology prescriptive coach centric approach. And there's some reasons for that. And he goes, yeah, at some point uh, we hope that the, the methods at least get explored in the United States. Cause 
you know, from a sports standpoint, that's a, that's a pretty important country, but um, yeah, to, yeah, to your point, the United States, I think he would argue, yeah, the United States is, is got some learning to do, so to speak. I agree. Just from what I've experienced over here, for sure. Sure. They're just, they're, I mean, they're great at teaching kids to be athletes. Yeah. You know, and I think we talked, maybe we talked about Johnny Mayer. I'm not sure, but if you gave a kid a baseball, he figure out how to throw a baseball over here pretty fast, or he could juggle a soccer ball. He could juggle period. He can do somersaults. He could do a pirouette, right? They're just like, they're athletes. But if you ask, if you went into the Pepperdine gym, there's maybe like five guys that could do that right now. That may be generous, you know? Yeah. You know, I don't know how you guys warm up over there, but in Denmark, we played soccer and and or handball every day to warm up. And first of all, it was a blast. Second of all, it was like, we would be, we would do it for an hour if we could. And like, yeah, we'll we'll practice volleyball later, but (laughs) it was the most fun. And, uh, all of them were good. It was insane. All of them could, I mean, and me and the other American were like fish out of water. We had no idea what to do. And by the end of the year, we got to where we could like not embarrass, you know, the, the, the United States as a country. But uh, yeah, it was, we always, they all could do it, you know, and they all could throw and they all, so you're, you're certainly onto something there. Yeah, that's cool. I'm in. Matt, you got anything else? No, sir case i think we're good here <laughs> man i i my, my girlfriend asked me hey what is the deal with the the name of the podcast and i just started laughing because i'm like god i can hear it like i can hear it viscerally him saying yeah. that and i think it was david was david on david's episode was he saying that yeah, mar didn't even know no shot i mean the guy said it like the end of every practice end of every locker room deal every every time he was saying it but yeah yeah, this is awesome you guys this is a really cool resource it really is and uh i just i i think the world of both you guys i hope i hope you know that i hope i've expressed that but um this is really cool and thanks for including me but mostly thanks for getting all these actually big time people and sharing the stories with us because they're oh man you're big time you're on the frontier now you're, you're frontier justice <laughs> for some coaches. Yeah. No, thanks for taking the time, man. And hopefully I, we I have, think, you uh, on, have you on again in the future. Yeah. Even if it's not on this, I, I like chatting with you guys. And uh, Jackson, you got a really good coach's perspective. And Matt, I love hearing uh, you talk about what it's like as an athlete. Because I think as coaches, again, the egos get so big that we, we ignore the perspective of the athlete. We think we know, Right. They, they're athletes they don't know. And, uh, man, it should be the other way around. Really, if anything, the athlete should be ignoring us at times. And we should be going to them going, hey, what do you think? What do you see? What do you feel? Because you guys are the ones doing it. You know? And, Matt, you're doing what, it at a really high level. It's my sixth year playing abroad. Yeah, I've learned a lot more about what – because I'd like to think I'm, I'm fairly reasonable with coaches because I sure. grew up with coaches. I grew up in a coach's <laughs> home and – everything but I've always aspired to be a coach so simultaneously I'm also really tough on them because I think like I just I this isn't how I would do it this is this just doesn't seem acceptable in my book I've learned a lot of things I've probably learned a lot more of what I would never do or say to an athlete and probably 80 percent of it is like what I wouldn't do and the other of it I'm like wow this is brilliant like why have I never thought of this 
and uh, no, it's been, yeah, it's, it's just interesting you say that, like you should talk to your athletes more. And I think about that all the time. And I spend a lot of time talking to my guys mm-hmm. off the court. Cause that's just important to me to have that constant yeah. flow. Yep. Just yep. to see where everybody's at, even if it's like a marital status or like sure. just your volleyball court or wherever it is, because I want to have everybody even. Yeah, I mean, you—you—that was something I think that's been a part of you certainly since I was—I was at Pepperdine and you were there. You were a good teammate. You know, I was—I don't think I was a great teammate. I was not a bad teammate. I, I stayed out of trouble. I did my work. I cared a lot about volleyball, but you took the time to invest in your teammates and. Uh, I always admired that about you. It's pretty cool. But maybe, maybe too much. It's probably too <laughs> I'd like to think, yeah, back in the day, I was probably, probably too nice. I probably still err on the side of being too nice. Sure. But at the end of the day, I would honestly, I would rather walk out and be them, them say like, oh, he is a good player, but he was a better guy. So sure. Most, most of the time, that's when I want to walk out.